Peter. Thank you to the team. Please take your seats. If you've come in and didn't get a copy of our notes as you came in, please put your hand up. Someone will bring them to you. Just shows you where we're going. I want to thank Cedar again for leading us in worship and for preaching as she did uh, two Sundays ago. Um, I often forget sometimes that Cedar is doing these things in her second language. She does such a wonderful job. So thank you, Cedar. God bless you. And thank you for your, your wonderful uh, ministry amongst our folk here. I was walking through Central Station when I was in university. I was coming to Central for some reason. And I was walking through and a man picked me out of the crowd. He looked at me in such a way that made me think that he knew me. And I looked at him and I thought, I've never seen this man before. But he went, ah. And he came over and started talking to me. We had a conversation as he walked through Central Station. It turned out he was an evangelist. He was a Christian trying to convince other people that they should hear him, they should listen to the good news, uh, his story about Jesus. And this was his way of engaging people. He looked at them in such a way as going, and went, oh, I think I know you. And that was his trick to get you to talk to him. Uh, we ended up having an interesting conversation. And as I walked away, he yelled after me, you're living in Babylon, David, you need to repent, because I was part of a different denomination to him. Another time I was walking through King George Square and I have a very strong memory of a man with a loud hailer shouting some things about God. And I thought, I wonder what good he's doing. Another time as I was waiting for a bus, someone was handing out tracts, religious tracts, and he convinced me to take one and then asked me to pay a dollar for the tract that he'd given me. And I thought, no, I don't have, well, I didn't have a dollar. I was a penniless uni student. I didn't have any money. I said, no, I don't have a dollar. And then as I read the cartoon later, there was a scene in the cartoon that talked about people being so miserly that they couldn't pay a dollar for the tract. And I thought, well, this is laying it on a bit thick. And another time as I was walking home from university with a friend, there was a man on the corner who stopped us and started talking to us and told us that we needed to speak in tongues in order to be saved. And I was there with my friend who I was trying to win to the gospel, who I was trying to convince that not all Christians were crazy. And yes, that was an interesting conversation. And of course, we've all had the JWs or the Mormons knocking on our door, trying to pitch us their sect, trying to tell us about their version of Jesus. And then people ring us on our mobile phones and try and scam us out of things, don't they? Do we want to switch our electricity? Do we want to do this or that? And then we get text messages telling us that our Amazon Prime subscription is going to run out unless we do something. I've never had an Amazon Prime subscription. People are always trying to sell us something or trying to convince us of something, and it gets us to the point where they've twisted our arms so much we don't want to listen to anyone. Are you like me in that way? We're sick of people trying to sell us stuff. They're either keen on Jesus or they're trying to get us to buy a different kind of electricity bill. We want to share Jesus' message. We want to tell people about Jesus. We want to share the gospel. We want to communicate the amazing stories of God's grace. But how? What's the best way? And how do we communicate without causing more harm than good? What is the right message? What is the best way to deliver? That message. We need wisdom. And that is what we can learn from Acts chapter 17 as we see Paul preach the gospel in Athens. We've been working our way for these last few weeks through the book of Acts, and our theme verse has been Acts 1 8, Jesus' last words before going back to heaven. Let's read them together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that power being poured out on people in different ways through the Pentecost experience as the church grows and expands and the, the good news about Jesus is proclaimed. Last week we spoke about gospel wonders as God does his part to draw people to faith. But we have a part to play as well. And our part requires wisdom. Paul and his team have been preaching their way through Macedonia and into south into Achaia. So here's our map of, of the old world. So this is Jerusalem and Palestine. Paul's done his missionary journey. And last week we took him to Troas and across to Macedonia. And he's been making his way south towards Corinth, which is where I want to get you because I plan to spend the rest of the year in Corinth. And I hope you'll spend that year with me. As they go through these parts of Greece, uh, in every town they start preaching, first of all, with the Jewish residents. There are Jewish people scattered all over the Mediterranean world. Most towns have a synagogue or a place of worship for Jewish people. And so Paul starts there because they speak his language. They read the same scriptures. They have the same idea of God. And so Paul and his friends go to the synagogue and they explain from the scriptures that the Messiah has come and whoops, we killed him. But it's okay because God has raised him from the dead and now this Messiah is coming back one day to be the judge of the whole earth. And Paul starts there. They would present this good news message to the Jewish community, but they would not just leave it with the Jewish community. They shared also with the worshippers of God amongst the Gentiles like the woman we spoke about last week. And they would share the gospel with the pagans also, like the jailer we spoke about last week. And they would stay in a town and proclaim the gospel until an uproar was caused and jealousies aroused, and usually someone would accuse them of something and they'd be forced to move on. In this world you will have troubles, Jesus said. And Paul and his team proved that again and again during this journey. Because not everyone who heard the good news believed it. Even with the wonders of God being done and the wisdom and the work of Paul and the apostolic band, not everyone believed. In fact, the majority didn't believe. Some took great offense at the message and stirred up trouble. In the previous passage, Paul has been chased out of a town called Berea and escorted by some friends to Athens, the ancient city the current capital of Greece. And while Paul waits for the rest of the team to catch up with him, he starts doing what he does. He starts talking to people about Jesus. He takes opportunities as they're presented to him. And so we're going to read a little bit of the passage. The kids have already read it to us, but we'll read a few extra verses to start off with this morning. While Paul was waiting for them, for the rest of the team in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
In Athens, the center of culture, religion, and philosophy, Paul had an opportunity to present the gospel to a new set of people, the intellectuals, the thinkers, the scholars of the Greek world. And so he shared shared the gospel in a wise way, a different way, without diluting the message. There were two schools of philosophy that dominated Athens in those days. There were the Epicureans. Everyone say Epicureans. The Epicureans said that happiness and pleasure were the main things about life. Life was all about being happy and pleasant. They believed that the gods were remote if they existed at all, and they were uninvolved, they were way out there, and they had nothing to do with us, there was nothing to be worried about that way. Life was to be relieved free of passion, pain, and fear of any kind. They believed in the importance of eat, drink, and be merry. That's the Epicureans, the Stoics. Everyone say Stoics. The Stoics were the opposite in so many ways. They believed that all of life was determined by the gods. Life had to be lived according to the laws of nature, completely free of emotional investment. There's no point getting upset about things or getting excited about things. It wasn't up to you anyway. The gods decided what happened. So no point getting passionately involved. Things were just going to happen. The Stoics' goal was to accept nature, live in it without intensity just to put up with whatever's happening around you and go, yep, that's the way it is. They were pantheistic. They believed that God was everywhere. The gods were everywhere. That everything is God. That's the Epicureans and the Stoics. So Paul's preaching of Jesus and the resurrection caused quite a stir in Athens. It challenged both schools of thought. They called him a babbler and a proclaimer of foreign gods. The word babbler here means seed picker. It's the word that they use to refer to birds. You know, the little birds that jump from bush to bush or from ground to spot on spot to pick up little seeds? That's the word babbler. The name was given to people who hung around in the marketplace picking up scraps of information. At this time, it meant one who picked up bits of knowledge from the lecturers and the wisdom and the philosophers and then mash it all together without really knowing what you're talking about. This would have upset Paul immensely. So he agreed to go with them and present his full thinking, his belief. So we read on. They then took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Here in verse 21, we seem to get a bit of Luke's opinion of these Athenians, lousy big city folks with nothing better to do than to talk a load of piffle. But then Luke was a very practical person. Paul gets invited to come and speak to the eggheads. He gets invited to come and speak to the boffins to go up on top of the big hill and have these proper philosophical debate to tell them what he's about. And Paul decides to start where they are. He takes the opportunity and he starts with what they are. He starts where they are. starts with what they believe. And so Paul, in this great introduction, verse 22, says, Paul stood up in the meeting and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. He begins by complimenting them and their city. He says, you're very religious. In fact, he says, for as I walked around, 
carefully and noted your look, looked at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, the unknown God, to an unknown God. These people are so religious that they even have a place to worship a God who they don't know his name, just in case the unknown God might get annoyed at them. And Paul makes the leap to say, you don't know my God. He's the unknown one, but I will make him known to you. You are ignorant of the very thing you worship. This is what I'm going to proclaim for you. Paul starts where they are. And then he looks for ways in which their philosophy and his philosophy overlap. Where do they agree? What are the things that we can agree on? Where did that start? Let's keep on reading. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From that one man. Hang on, sorry. Before I get to that verse. This God, he says, the God where they overlap is that the the Jews, the, the Jews, come on brain. Let me change gear. The Greeks, thank you. The Greeks worship their great God as Zeus. These things that Paul is saying, the Greeks would have gone, yeah, that's right. Zeus did do all those things. He did make all these things. And he doesn't live in a temple. He's bigger than us. So Paul starts with that overlap. What do we agree on? There is a big God, Paul says, who's made everything. And he's not served by our human hands. He gives everyone life and breath and, human th- and everything else. God doesn't need people. He's not served by their hands. This God is at the center of all things. And he goes on and says, God has made all people. From one man he made all the nations so they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history, the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him out and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. God has made people, all related, all of one blood, he says. And by the way, that's something that us Christians can agree with, even the evolutionists, even those who think that we came from whatever, ancestor monkeys, they think we came from one ancestor monkey man and one ancestor monkey woman, by the way. The scientists have worked that out as well through their science. We call that Adam and Eve. We all believe well, that's something we can start from. Humans and the uh, Christians and evolutionists can start with that position. We all come from one man and one woman. But I won't go into that. That's too complicated for this morning. God has made these people and created them and cares for them with a goal in mind that people should seek for him. Seek for God. Reach out to him and find him. For he's not far from any of us. In this way, he starts to challenge the Epicureans because the Epicureans think that the gods are many and distant, uncaring or uninvolved. But he also starts to challenge the Stoics who thinks that the gods are in everything. No, Paul says there's one big God who's made, in every, who's made everything and he's close to everyone. He is close by but distinct from his creation. And then Paul demonstrates his literary ability. He quotes Greek poetry. He quotes their own history and philosophy. 
He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. This is a a poem, a, a story about their God Zeus. And he says, and we are his offspring. Paul knows who he's talking to and he knows what they believe. He quotes from the things that they find authoritative. He, doesn't, he quotes from their sources. He doesn't quote scripture that they don't know. He doesn't quote religious leaders that they have not heard of. He draws from their parts of their tradition that agree with or can be made to agree with the gospel. And having started in this way of seeing where things overlap, he starts to challenge them. He starts to challenge them. He does it carefully. The next verse says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. He says that if we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't have to make gods. No more idols to bow down to and worship. No more images, no more inventions. Paul is challenging a fundamental part of Greek religious life, but he's doing so carefully. He doesn't start his message with, all these idols are false and your gods are stupid and evil and you're all going to hell. He doesn't start there. Instead, he draws them through the journey to consider the problems in their own religious system. You have all these gods, he says, but they're just idols. And anyone can come along and set up a new idol to a new god just because they can make a statue. He challenges them about the problems in their own religion. Then he presents the good news. He presents the gospel. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. He says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul takes the opportunity here to present the essential matters of the good news. Firstly, he says there is a God, a God who is good, a God who is gracious and kind. This God that Paul has described as the creator of all things, who gives life and breath, whose children we are, in whom we live and breathe and have our being, he has been kind and he has been gracious in overlooking the false idols and the worship of the other gods. God is good. But now he says the time has come for people to repent, to turn away from the wrong things and ask for forgiveness from a God who is not far away, but a God who's entirely within reach. This reminds me so much of Mark 1.15, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, close by. Repent and believe the good news. Last week we read that the jailer was told to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And here the Athenians are told to repent of their wrong ideas and false gods. They're two sides of the one coin, repent and believe. Believe and repent. Why should they repent? Because there is coming a day of judgment when all people will stand and face justice. There will be consequences for the choices people make. As Alapacita spoke about the other week, we make the future with choices we make today determine our future. 
There will be consequences for the choices that people make. We are not free agents just to eat, drink and be merry. Our decisions here have eternal consequences. And the judge on that day has already been chosen. Paul talks here of the man that God has appointed to be the judge. That man is Jesus Christ. He will be the judge on that day. It is to him that all people who have ever lived or ever lived, it will live, will give an account. And Paul says that the evidence for everything that he's claimed is the resurrection. He says Jesus is alive. He's come back from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the key to all of this. It is a living Messiah and judge that we can appeal to here and now. One we can speak with and engage with. The living Jesus is active in the world through his spirit. And people can reach out to him and feel his presence. This is no theoretical framework of religion. This is an invitation to meet a person. A relationship with the divine. A spiritual interaction. There's a story of a preacher who was gathered an, out, an open-air meeting and was preaching and saying, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. And someone in the crowd yelled out, how do we know he's alive? And the preacher said, well, I spoke to him for half an hour this morning. And you can too. There is then an opportunity for a decision. People need to make a choice. We keep reading from Acts chapter 17. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. We get the impression that Paul is cut short in his presentation, but this probably is not the case. He said everything that he needs to say. It's a standard four-step gospel that we've heard so often since the 50s, basically. The four steps of evangelism explosion and all those other evangelism programs take us through these same four steps. God is good. People need to repent. Judgment's coming. Jesus is alive. We only have the overview here. No doubt Paul said more than just these hundred words or so. But here is the summary of what he spoke about. And it's enough for those listening to make up their mind. Some sneer and mock the idea of the resurrection. Others are curious and want to know more. They want to think about these things. They want to ask some questions. And still others become believers. Verse 34 says, Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Some become believers. They're won over by the presentation and a number of them become followers of Paul. No longer followers of Epicurus or followers of the Stoics, but now they're Paulians. And Paul will very quickly point them to Jesus. He always points people away from himself and to Jesus. The gospel calls for a decision because this gospel is not something that's done to people. I think so many of our street evangelists and so many of the people that I encountered, that fellow in Central Station, I'm sure he had in his mind that if he could just say just the right words, I would fall to the ground and weep in repentance under the power of God. That's not how the good news works. The good news is an invitation to hear and consider and to respond to some information. 
And people need to make a response for themselves. They cannot be forced or coerced or manipulated into a real relationship with God. Paul leaves the Areopagus at that point. He leaves and goes back down into the city. But that's not the end of the conversation. He decides to maintain relationships with those. Even with those who sneer and reject the gospel, Paul does not end his presentation with a damning curse or with angry words. He does not yell at them as he leaves, you're all living in Babylon. He understands that not everyone who rejects the gospel today will reject it forever. He doesn't paint a sign that says Epicureans go to hell. Nor does he carry a sign around saying Stoics stink, even though they did. He doesn't parade around the city. He doesn't burn bridges or cause unnecessary offense. He shares the message of Jesus simply and kindly and then leaves the door open for further conversation. There are those who said, we want to hear more about this. We want more on this subject. And you can be sure that Paul was keen to have those conversations. You know, there are people in the world who are fine with God and Jesus and the gospel. It's the Christians they can't stand. They've been insulted and upset and let down by God's people and they don't want anything to do with those religious folk. Fair enough, really. The way some Christians go on, I don't want much to do with them either. Let's not be those people. Let's make sure the doorway to faith is always left open to people, not slammed in their faces. Are there any questions this morning? Well, you have a think about whether you'd like to ask a question. I'm going to get my water. For those visiting with us, I'd like to stop and see if there are questions, if there's anything I've said that um, you'd like more information on or didn't understand. This is your opportunity, or you can send me an email or a message or give me a call. So where does door-to-door evangelism come into it? I think, hmm, I'm all for it if you know the person on the other side of the door or if you do it well. The idea of, I don't think it's been done well in my lifetime Um, because so often the door-to-door salesman becomes the change your electricity company or you'll go to hell, that sort of approach. Door-to-door evangelism has its place, and people who do it well, God bless them and go and do it. And if you've got no experience of it, then give it a go. (laughs) But it's hard, it's tough. And we'll talk more about why next week. So we've got gospel wisdom, gospel works we saw, no, gospel wonders last week, gospel wisdom this week. Next week we're going to talk about the work of evangelism and what it actually means to make, make all this come together. How do we make the gospel work effectively for people? People, you're going to knock on the door and in two minutes convince someone to turn their whole life upside down? Probably not. It's going to be really, really tough. Over here, Lyndon. Is this, so Lyndon's asking, is there still a place for street evangelism? And knowing my background, because Lyndon and I come from a Salvation Army background. Uh, yes, absolutely. Please don't hear me to say that these people, that people shouldn't be evangelizing on the street. It can be done really well. And I have seen it done really well. 
But for every time I've seen it done really well, I've seen three times it's done really, really badly. Yes? What preparation do we need to do as a church to do it properly? Yes. I Complicated questions, and that, that's a 20-minute answer right there. We'll talk more about that next week, about the work of evangelism and how we do that, building relationships and those sorts of things. I, I think that for most people in our 21st century world, they're not looking for entertainment or, edu- or information on the street. We're so bombarded with information all the time that most people just want to get to the shops, get their milk and get home. They don't want to be bothered by people. 50 years ago, well, when I was a kid, the Salvation Army band would go out and play on the street and everyone would go inside and shut their doors and watch Disney Channel, watch, watch what, what it was on TV. But when my dad was a kid, when the band would come out and play, people would come from everywhere to come and see the brass band. Because they didn't have a television. They didn't have a radio. They had nothing else to do. There's a brass band on the corner. Let's go and listen to them. And so it worked. But by the time I was growing up in the 80s, no one came out to listen to the brass band. They didn't care. They all went inside and listened to the, watched the TV. And as a kid, I thought, why can't I be at home watching Disney on Sunday night? Why am I out here? Um, as our society changes, our methods need to change and adapt. That's the wisdom of the gospel. We can't march down the street anymore and wave a banner and expect people to come pouring out of their homes and follow us down the road. Doesn't, the world doesn't work that way anymore. We'll talk more about those sorts of things next week. Thank you for your good question. What I want to remind you of this morning is those things that Paul demonstrates here in Acts chapter 17. He takes the opportunities that are presented to him. He's always looking for a chance to talk to someone about God. He's always looking for a chance to share the gospel. And we should be doing the same. In our work life, in our home life, in our school, whatever it is you're doing, we should be looking for those opportunities to share with someone. That's not means we have to force those opportunities, but looking for those opportunities. So if somebody dies, somebody's a friend or a family member has died, you can ask them the question, what do you believe happens after death? How is this impacting you? Were they a believer? What did they believe? Take the opportunities to talk about that and start where they are. Start with what they believe. You can say to someone, what do you believe is the meaning of life? And find out what their story is. Find out their background. Start where they are. Find out on the things we can agree on. There's one thing that Christians and atheists can agree on. That is that everybody dies. So let's start there. Because that's what atheists believe and that's what Christians believe. Everybody dies. Let's start there when we're talking to those folk. Let's be very careful about how we challenge other people in their belief. Because as soon as you start challenging their defenses go up and they won't listen to anything else. But if you know what they believe and why, you can start to ask questions well, how does that work when this happens? Or how do you explain that this? Let's know the essentials of the gospel and how to present the gospel. Those essentials are that God is good. He's real and he's good. And because he's good, people can repent. They can turn away from those things where they've failed or done wrong things. They can repent because of who Jesus is and what he has done. 
people can repent. That there are consequences for the choices we make. We're not free agents. Not everybody gets a free pass to heaven, but we will have to pay. We will have to give an account of our lives. If we don't repent now, we'll be in trouble later on. Perhaps most important of all, Jesus is alive. And you can meet him today. So many people have this idea of Christianity just being a series of rules, that we're just here following rules. No, Jesus is alive. We can interact with him. We can have a relationship with him. He can be our friend, our saviour, our Lord, here and now today. We call for people to make a decision, make some sort of response. Would you like to know more? Would you like to come with me to church? Would you like to meet my pastor? He wears, wears very strange shirts. Whatever it is you want to say. Would you like to know more? Would you like to take a step of faith today? And I think very important in our 21st century world is to maintain those relationships. Even if people say, no, thank you, I'm not interested, you can say, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. We can still be friends. We can still carry on. There are people in this room or people who are watching at home perhaps are married to people who don't believe. And how do they maintain those relationships when one person's going one way and one person's going the other way? so important to maintain those relationships, to still be in love, to still care for one another, and to be able to say, well, this is what I believe, and if you ever want to talk to me about it, I'd love to talk to you about it. In fact, I encourage people on the day after their wedding anniversary to say to their non-believing husband or wife to say, you know I'm a Christian. You know I believe in Jesus. I'd love the opportunity to talk to you about what I believe and why. The other husband or partner might say, no, I'm not interested. Say, okay, well, next year I'll ask you again. It doesn't change how much you love them or care for them or whatever. Say, look, I'm open to these conversations. I would love for you to become a Christian. I'd love for you to know Jesus. I'd love you to know him the way I know him. The song I've chosen for reflection time this morning says, Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Patiently, Jesus is waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. And the chorus says, Come home, come home. Jesus is calling us to come home. This is a message both for us to share with others and a message to us this morning. Jesus is calling you. Do you know him? Have you had a conversation with him recently? Is he your saviour, your Lord, your friend? Let's pray. Father God, this morning I thank you for your wisdom of the good news, how we can present that good news to others. Father God, I pray that you would speak to us today. We have a gospel that matches the hour. We have a message that our world needs to hear. Help us to share it in a way that makes sense for people today. Father God, I pray today that you would put into our hearts and minds just now someone we can share the gospel with, someone we can share that good news with this week. Father God.